welcome back to State of Mind. I'm Grace Kingswell and I'm a nutritional therapist, auricular acupuncturist, breathwork coach and cold water swimmer. And this is my podcast series all about health, nutrition, lifestyle medicine, sustainability and so much more. Before we get into this episode with Alex, which by the way is a great one, I quickly want to tell you about my ebook, The Seven Day Reset Plan. I had a few messages from you guys asking whether it was still available. The answer is yes, and it's on my website. The ebook is a no fuss, no bliss ball, no green smoothie approach to health, just real food that is honestly good for you. It includes lots of lifestyle advice along the lines of sleep, light, gut health, circadian rhythms and mindset, plus a collection of recipes that are aimed at calming inflammation and supporting gut health. Head to my website gracekingswell.com to find out more. Right, on to today's episode with Alex Manos. Alex is a very, very highly regarded practitioner in the UK, and he has numerous degrees and qualifications, among them a BSc in nutritional therapy, an MSc in personalized nutrition, and he is a member of the Institute for Functional Medicine. Alex has been practicing now, I think for about 14 years, and I'd been waiting and waiting to do a dedicated episode on gut health. And when Alex agreed to be my guest, I was beyond excited to finally talk all things gut bacteria, the microbiome, SIBO, the oral microbiome, and so much more. We start off our discussion with how important it is to look after your dental hygiene, because yes, you've guessed it, your oral microbiome, that's the microbiome that lives in your mouth, is linked to your gut microbiome, and both need to be in tip-top condition for things to work smoothly. We then go on to talk about SIBO, which stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which is what I myself suffered from multiple times and what led me down the path of finally healing my body from chronic illness. We also discuss probiotics and why you don't need to take them every morning like that influencer you saw shotting Simprove on their stories. We discuss the importance of diet and what to do if you find you can't tolerate grains and legumes. We discuss antimicrobials, the gut-brain axis and so much more. This is a must-listen episode if you want to upgrade your health. Huge thanks to Alex for sharing his wisdom and knowledge with me, and I hope this episode leaves you feeling empowered and ready to take your health to the next level. As ever, if you enjoyed this episode, I would be beyond grateful if you could help me to spread the word about State of Mind by sharing the episode to your Instagram stories and writing me a rave review on the Apple Podcasts app. So let's get into the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thank you for having me. We're sitting in your living room with your lovely Christmas tree. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we love very winter festive. theme. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm really excited to have you on. I've been wanting to do an episode all about the gut for a long time. Um, before we get into all of that, I always start the podcast in the same way with everyone, um, which is to ask, what was the last thing you did that positively impacted your health? Ah, well, I kind of want to say tongue in cheek lost my teeth this morning and yes, we can probably we can probably into get that. into that because it is actually related to gut health as well so um we can dive into that later um but on I guess a bigger note um I've had a little period where I've been I guess more sedentary than I should be so I'm now back in a routine of getting mm. into the gym so over the weekend uh went Saturday and Sunday so that's from a, a larger perspective what I've been doing yeah so yeah Amazing. Nice. Let's just go straight into the teeth blessing thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I recently saw, and I think it's the first I've seen, um, an advert for a toothpaste 
which supposedly supports and promotes the uh, cultivation of good oral um, microbiome bacteria in our mouth. Um, So I think the whole concept of your gut health starts in your mouth is beginning to kind of trickle through. Mm. Um, But yeah, I'd love for you to unpack the, the tooth flossing thing for us. Yeah, so I, I guess the the overarching concept is that, as you say, we've been very focused on the gut microbiome for the last decade or more. Um, and we're now starting to appreciate the complexity and the importance of these other microbiomes. So whether it's the oral microbiome, whether it's the vaginal microbiome, the skin microbiome, they're all interconnected but have some independence at the same time Mm. um and when we think about oral health what we're starting to appreciate is that if we have a specific pathogen or bad bacteria or organism within our oral microbiome it can essentially have an impact on our systemic health so it could impact our cognitive health over a period of time and there have been discussions in the literature around the oral microbiome and alzheimer's disease for example Um, but salivary IgA, so an antibody that our immune system produces and is a key part of essentially maintaining a healthy immune system Mm. is also an endogenous defense mechanism against things like SIBO. So there is a growing theory that actually imbalances in our oral microbiome because we're swallowing so much of that bacteria. Could that actually contribute to chronic relapsing cases of SIBO Mm. so um, I have a colleague Robin Pooley and she talks a lot about the sort of the digestive dominoes so starting from the mouth and working your way through the digestive system so not only the health of the microbiome but also chewing your food for example Um, making sure that when you are eating you're eating as mindfully and as calmly in that overall environment is conducive to the digestive process because How many of us are eating a sandwich from Tesco Express on the run at lunchtime, for example? And it really is emphasizing that these basics are the most powerful interventions we have when it comes to optimizing digestive health. I just think it can be challenging to accept that sometimes Mm. um, because it seems almost too simple. Yeah, and I think it's... um things like that fall into the kind of mainstream dialogue of dialogue sorry of wellness and if you're someone with a health issue or a chronic complaint and you really want to get better and then your practitioner tells you to floss your teeth Mm. you might be like where's my medicine or like (laughs) how are you fixing this um so if someone is there a way of knowing if if you have chronically bad oral microbiome are things are there things we can do yeah there are now um There are now oral microbiome tests you can do that are sort of saliva swabs. Mm. Um, I know that in Vivo Clinical, which is sort of a functional testing laboratory um, in the UK, offer one. Um, So it is possible to start to assess this. I've actually probably got my first handful of clients where we're exploring that side of things. Because obviously, if you have a client who does have a chronic health issue, full stop, really, And in their health history is poor oral health. You know, they have gum disease, they've had um, extractions, all sorts of sort Mm. of operations or surgeries, et cetera. Then it is sort of an opportunity to investigate that further. And it certainly needs to be within that framework of how you're then supporting that client, because it may be that the first part of that program needs to be optimizing 
oral health to the best of our ability. Mm. And does that involve um, kind of shying away from various stringent mouthwashes, toothpaste with fluoride, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I think... I think to some degree it has to. I know uh, some practitioners who are very hot on this. Um, I believe I'm right in saying there's research sort of at least discussing the concept of some of the traditional um, mouthwashes increasing our risk of cardiovascular Mm. disease because of the impact it's having on that oral microbiome. Um, In regards to fluoride, I think that's just purely more about toxicity Mm. um, and the relationship with thyroid function. Yeah. but I am an advocate of of kind of natural products as much as possible. I think when you do dive into the research on toxicity and the impact it is likely having in some shape or form, you can't help but think that we need to do everything we can to reduce that toxic burden. Yeah. And, and toiletries is probably one of the most powerful ways of doing that. Mm, like it just can't not have an effect. All these things we're slathering on our skin and, yeah. you know, it's, it seems mental. Um you mentioned SIBO in all of that. Um, I feel like it's uh, an acronym that more people are hearing about. Um, I'm talking about kind of like the the mass population rather than specialized practitioners because right. obviously someone said SIBO to you and I um, probably, well, I would definitely know what it is having had it four times. <laughs> um, but it's uh, it's being written about now in quite mainstream books about gut health. Um how is small intestine bacterial overgrowth different from, let's say, a standard uh, gut imbalance? Um, good question. So I guess to take a step back quickly to answer that, if we were to think about the digestive process and the digestive system, we've got the stomach, obviously, that is an incredibly acidic environment, should be an acidic environment. Um, and that is one of our endogenous defense mechanisms so that acidity in theory should prevent at least some of the bacteria that we're swallowing either from the oral microbiome or from our food and water from entering the small and large intestine Uh, the small intestine is obviously the site of SIBO small intestine bacterial overgrowth Um, and then we have the large intestine which I guess has been the spotlight up until the SIBO beast became what it is essentially. So we used to always talk about the large intestine because that's where the trillions of bacteria reside. That's where we often will talk about parasitic infections. That's where we used to certainly talk about dysbiosis or an imbalance in bacteria a lot there Mm -hmm. as well. So SIBO is slightly different because of the compartment of the intestine it's in, the small rather than the large. Um, And personally... I think it can also be slightly different because SIBO is so frequently associated with so many different conditions and I think is often a symptom of some of those other conditions in its own right. Right, okay. So I I, I think looking at SIBO, you have quite a traditional approach, which is, for example, someone who's had a bout of food poisoning and ever since then really hasn't been right. Mm that could be a relatively traditional case of SIBO. Um, And we can go into the mechanisms maybe in a second. But we've got this other pool of cases of SIBO whereby they don't seem to have had a bout of food poisoning. Um, They may have a different diagnosis. It could be an autoimmune condition. It could be chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. Uh, It could be just an undiagnosed chronic health condition. Mm. 
And I would almost say more times than not, you'll find that they also have SIBO. Mm. Um, So there's also this kind of area of gut health, which is very much around the concept that the health of the host, i.e. the individual, and especially the health of that systemic immune system has a huge role to play within the microbiome and all the microbiomes. So I think oral, small, large, skin, etc. The mm. immune system is a regulator of that. So although we talk a lot about disease starts in the gut, it is bidirectional. So this is probably one of the mechanisms whereby chronic stress can then have an impact on all of these different imbalances because chronic stress will disrupt healthy immune regulation. And if you don't have healthy immune regulation, you just can't have a healthy gut. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if that answered the question, but it might have been in there somewhere. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. I think there's a few things I want to touch on in that. So if someone, I mean, how would you uh, differentiate, let's say, symptoms of SIBO with something that was going on in your mm. large intestine? I don't think you can. Mm. Um, I think people try. So there are probably blog posts that look to differentiate, but ultimately, you know, bloating, yeah. nausea, reflux, diarrhea, constipation, abdominal pain, skin conditions, brain fog and cognitive symptoms like poor concentration, poor memory, poor word recall, um, chronic fatigue syndrome, nutrient deficiencies. Mm, it's just endless, it's, isn't it? They can all be associated with small or large intestine, I would argue. Yeah. Um, you might argue that if symptoms come on quicker after eating that it could be in a relationship with higher up the GI tract but Mm -hmm. I don't think you can say that definitively Mm. um so it is very hard to know and I actually advocate SIBO and stool testing simultaneously if possible yeah to just help understand in more and greater detail you know what is going on within those two compartments because Mm. you may find that someone with SIBO has low pancreatic elastase, for example, in stool testing, which is a marker of whether someone's producing enough digestive enzymes from the pancreas. Yeah. And often that will be low in people with SIBO, but not always. Um, and what actually I sometimes find is people have significant symptoms of maldigestion. So they might literally have undigested food in their stool, mm. which also means they're probably not chewing their food Mm. even if they think they are so if you see bits of sweet corn or a whole pea in your stool you are not chewing your food properly because really my rule is you if you were to spit out your food before swallowing to a large degree it should be unrecognizable you know we want it to be just mush ultimately um but i see people who experience that symptom have normal pancreatic elastase but also have SIBO. So there's got to be some sort of mechanism where these individuals are producing enough digestive enzymes, but those enzymes have a reduced ability to actually work because of we're seeing that undigested food. Yeah. Um, so it is tricky and it's tricky to then differentiate where to go unless you are looking at both compartments. Mm. That's my view. I do know colleagues who will always just start with SIBO testing because of that yeah Yeah. so you can do a three-hour breath test look at hydrogen and methane gas Um, which in Australia is not a three-hour breath test it's however many hours you need 
in order to get the reading that they're looking for. So ah. I was once at the testing facility for over five hours. Wow. And it was so hard going. Because wow. obviously like you do the fast for 12 yeah. hours beforehand. And I'd done, I think, two or three breath tests in the UK, like the previous year. And then we moved to Australia. And um, I, as you do with SIBO, felt like I'd relapsed. Um, so went and did a test at the facility. And it was like, yeah, over, well over five hours. <laughs> Which is so, so long. Ouch. I'm so hungry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, my first SIBO test was about 10 years ago. Um, and then it was a 24 hour fast and there weren't at home tests. Test kits. So it was going into London, going to the clinic, yeah. um, going into the waiting room and every 20 minutes going into a, a clinic with a nurse and doing my doing, breath sample. Yeah. Um, Fortunately, it's a little bit better now and it's an mm. eight to 12 hour fast is the general consensus. Mm. Um, and then obviously a restrictive diet for the 12 hours before that. So the idea is you're, you're cleansing out the small intestine of food and fibers. Yeah. Drinking a little sugary solution of lactulose or glucose. Um, and we're monitoring the level of gas within a breath sample that's taken every 20 minutes for three hours to see whether we or if there is a rise in hydrogen, which could indicate a bacterial overgrowth mm -hmm. in the small intestine, uh, or whether there is a higher than normal level of methane gas. Mm. And methane gas has been quite strongly associated with constipation in the research. So if someone has IBS-C, so if they've been diagnosed with IBS of the constipation type, as it were, mm -hmm. then that can be something to start considering, yeah. whether they have an issue with excessive methane production. Yeah. And that is technically not a bacterial overgrowth. So the organisms that produce methane are archaea. Mm. Uh, basically a slightly different organism, I believe they're even older than bacteria, that a good subset of all of us have, essentially. It's just whether, again, we're producing too much of it. Yeah. And in terms of, because CO is characteristically hard to treat, and I know I've heard you talk about this in uh, other podcasts, but in terms of treatment say for example you had identified uh, a small intestine issue in one patient and a more large intestine mm. issue in another um the symptoms are very say very similar for, for both conditions would the treatment mechanism be similar to some degree yes i guess depending on um what the imbalance in the large intestine was mm -hmm. so i think one of the great things about using complementary medicine if i use the term is when we're using herbs such as oregano oil they are antimicrobial they're not just antibacterial yeah so you can use something like oregano oil as an antibacterial if someone has small intestine bacterial overgrowth mm. but it may also be um successful at lowering or eradicating a parasitic infection in the large intestine nice. so you can often kill two birds with one stone mm. from that approach um i mean there's research showing us that probiotics can be successful at decontaminating the small intestine so mm. again we can use probiotics to help eradicate a bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine but it will also help modify the immune system as it's traveling through the large intestine as well mm. and using pro and prebiotics in some people will be enough to help eradicate a parasitic infection anyway mm. so i think we have a good handful of tools that we can use both in small and large intestinal imbalances 
to know and be comfortable that actually, you know, we are supporting both elements to some degree. What about the thinking that if you do have um, dysbiosis and you have a proliferation of bad gut bacteria, giving probiotics is just like throwing fuel on the fire in a sense, Mm. because that bad bacteria will um, use that as a food source and multiply. Yeah, I... I don't think I've really found that. I've certainly found in a very few people with SIBO that probiotics can seem to exacerbate symptoms. Mm. Um, And I think one of the general consensus theories there is if you are essentially, well, put simply supplementing the wrong type, obviously, but is that related to the fact that what you are supplementing is the bacteria that has overgrown, for example? Biopsy studies have found that, you know, you do get some of these gram-negative bacteria like Klebsiella and E. coli that have been found in the small intestine that shouldn't be there or are there at higher quantities. Um, But I still think probiotics are one of the first things to consider in in small and large uh, microbial imbalances. Mm. But there is a little bit of trial and error in regards to what is going to be most effective. Yeah. Um, and you've also got different approaches you can take. So you can take, using um, Mike Ash's words, you can take a scattergun approach. So you can take a multi-strain bifido-lacto-probiotic. Yep. And for some, it will be really helpful. And symptoms may certainly improve depending on what's going on in that individual. But you can also take single-strain probiotics And there are some that have good research behind them in specific settings. So, for example, um, I used to know the specific strains. I now just know the commercial name. So Ideal Bowel Supports, which is a probiotic by a company called Jaro, that has human studies behind it and is referred to as a psychobiotic. Mm -hmm. So it's been shown in humans to lower anxiety, improve depression scores, um, reduce subjective levels of stress. It improves bloating. Um, and it's been shown to improve iron absorption when people have iron deficiency anemia. So there are specific occasions where you can use specific strains of probiotic. Mm. Um, Another one would be the probiotic clinical GI by now. That has been shown to improve whole gut transit and therefore may help with people who have excessive methane or and a constipated, for example. Yeah. And then you've got like Culturel, which used to be the most researched probiotic. Mm. And that can be fantastic for kind of mucosal immunity. Um, it can reduce abdominal sort of hyper sensitivity. So people with abdominal pain and things like yeah, this. Yeah. So you can, there are different approaches you can take. You can be very specific with your probiotic recommendation sometimes. Um, but you can also take the scattergun approach. Mm. You're never going to know which one is the best one to do. Yeah. Um, you could do both simultaneously. What I have started doing a lot of is just rotating. So give clients a list of probiotics and just be like, look, rotate between them. Mm. If one, if you really feel like you resonate with one, then obviously continue for a longer time period. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, I think the general principle there. Mm. I had um I put a little Instagram story up that I was going to be doing a gut focused podcast and did anyone have any questions the overwhelming question was about probiotics because I think for your um because what we were kind of talking about there is if you're working with a practitioner and that practitioner has identified that maybe you need a certain strain or they want you to try this for your average um individual that's kind of keen to optimize their health and is like a little bit into wellness and 
you know, the gut health dialogue is so huge at the moment. Um, I think everyone assumes they need probiotics. Like everyone should be taking probiotics. And the main question I had is, should I be? And secondly, um, is it all just, you know, is it worth getting a really expensive one? Is mm. it just hype? What should I be looking out for? You know, you've got influence, every influencer under the sun promoting Simprove. Right. There's just so much confusion. And I'd love for you to just debunk a little bit about that. So maybe firstly, does everyone need probiotics? And then secondly, if they are going to take them and they're buying kind of off the high street, what should they look out for? Okay, so in regards <laughs> to the first question, I would at this point in time say no. Yeah. I don't think there is research that would indicate that we should just take a probiotic for for probiotic gut health sake. Partly because there's so much we can do from a dietary perspective. Mm. So, you know, I think ensuring that we have adequate diversity in our diet um I know there are various figures that we throw around ranging from 30 to 50 different plant-based foods per week that we should be aiming for. So um, a lot of nutritionists these days will give clients a document that helps them essentially count how many different plant foods they're having a week, yeah. stick it on the fridge door. It is actually quite an interesting exercise to do. I remember the first time we did it, just actually becoming more conscious and aware of okay well how many different foods do we actually consume mm. it's it's amazing how just bring that little bit of additional awareness to our habits can be quite powerful but that includes obviously fruit veg whole grains legumes nuts seeds lentils pulses beans herbs and spices so to get somewhere let's say between 30 and 40 shouldn't be very hard considering mm. I made a, a chili con carne this week and there are about 10 different foods within that just one meal. Yeah. Um, you know, soups in the winter months, salads and juices and smoothies in the summer months. And those are very simple strategies to get that diversity in. And the reason why that's one of the first rules is because that will improve the diversity of the microbiome. Mm. And the general consensus at the moment is that that is one of the key metrics of a healthy gut. Um, you can obviously consider fermented foods, so things like kefir and sauerkraut and kombucha, and certainly making them yourself is a super cheap way of just getting some of these bacteria into the digestive system. Mm -hmm. um, exercise, you know, there is research and it's very hard to be able to categorically say that exercise improves microbiome diversity because there are just so many variables that obviously Absolutely, you can't yeah. really control. But the again, the growing consensus is that exercise probably supports microbiome diversity as well so staying active um getting outside getting dirty getting mm. in nature swimming in you know fresh water if you can all these kind of things will help yeah. getting into nature fundamentally will support your microbiome um stress levels we have studies done in the military that show us that if you put people under chronic psychophysical stress it contributes to dysbiosis, imbalances in the microbiome yeah. and leaky gut. Mm. So stress is like a deal breaker. If we're not doing things to manage that to the best of our ability, there's no point throwing supplements down, trying to make up for it ultimately. Mm. Um, there are going to be times when obviously that is warranted. There's going to be periods in life when stress is something that is just going to be there. And yes, we want to support that individual as best we can, but we have to do our best from that perspective. Um, 
obviously medications so ppis are a bit of an epidemic and are prescribed very freely but those yeah. are going to impact things previous cause of antibiotics wiping out certain species of the microbiome can be a factor as well so I think there's so much we can do from a dietary and from a lifestyle perspective that we don't have an argument, which is take probiotic for your general health and well-being. Mm. Um, I don't think it really makes sense if you're doing all of those other things. Going to the second part, which was what to look out for mm. if on the high street. Um, it's a good question. Like, should I would, people be looking for a certain amount of strains or... I don't think so. I mean, I think that the amount varies a bit from study to study. And generally, I think I'd be right in saying that if you're going with a, a trusted brand, often, not always, but often that's taken care of. Mm. So I would probably say it's more about the brands that you are getting. And this is actually a really important point because they've done studies. They've taken probiotics off the shelf of a high of a high street sort of health food store yeah. and they have assessed the supplement sort of independently third party and what they found is i always get my words modeled here they have found bacteria in the product that aren't on the label and they've found or they've seen bacteria that are marked on the label that aren't in the product and we have to say that the supplement industry isn't regulated. Yeah. So you have to go with trusted brands. Um, so, you know, and there's probably, we're all going to have our innate biases here, but Designs for Health, I think, is a really good range. Um, some of Seeking Health, I really like. Um, you know, Optibac for probiotics, I mm. think, is a great company. Um, I've seen some good responses with some of their products personally and sort of clinically. Um, higher Nature Biocare, you know, those are well-respected mm. companies, I would say, within the health industry as well. Mm. And then you have some, you know, practitioner-only brands like I think Biomedica, uh, Apex, who are yeah. US brands. They are very, very good quality. Um, but as a result, they are more expensive. And then you have the conversation around partly as a result of that don't just randomly be popping pills yes um i would i would really argue get some functional testing done because the money that you're going to spend up front on the test will will help to some degree tailor the supplement program so mm. the long term sort of financial costs are probably a lot less mm. i was speaking to a colleague the other day and you know for 99 pounds you can do sort of an omega-3 um, or omega-369 saturated fatty acid sort of profile, um, you may find that your fatty acid status is fine and you don't need to be spending 30, 40 pounds a month on an omega-3 type product. Yeah. So they do come at a upfront cost, but actually it could be saving something in the long term. Mm. Um, it's the same with micronutrient supplementation to a degree, the same with probiotic supplementation. It's worth highlighting again that the statistic that I've most recently read is I think 17% of people with SIBO are asymptomatic. Right. Now, I don't know whether that means that 17% need treatment. You could argue that they don't and that there's some sort of adaptive response that's gone on and that's just their microbiome as it is. Mm. Um, I think that's a, probably a sensible way to approach it. But you'll also find there are people with imbalances in stool testing, looking more at the large intestine, 
who might not have significant symptoms, maybe some very low level symptoms, a little bit of bloating, etc. But that might be something that you want to be you want to, have to sort of take a preventative role with mm. um, because how many of us are waiting until a symptom is severe enough or chronic enough for us to actually act upon Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. And when you look at sort of some of the research around, I don't, I don't want to be fear-mongering here, but it, it's the one that comes to mind, sort of constipation and Parkinson's disease and constipation being a symptom that might manifest 10 years before the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. Mm. At an extreme level, if we use that as the example, it does show us that we need to be as preventative as we can be. It doesn't mean we need to worry and be anxious about symptom X, Y, Z, but we do want to try and get on top of it and understand what's going on in our lifestyle, in our mind, what's going on in our life that we might be able to tweak and modify to optimize Mm -hmm. our health because essentially we want to be as healthy as we can be for as long as we can be. Yeah. I really want to just loop back to the um, the fibre question. Yes. So that, like you were saying, the, the research now and the understanding is that somewhere between 30 and 40 different strains of plant-based foods um, is beneficial to cultivating a nice diverse gut microbiome. For those people with... Um, gastrointestinal upset Mm. SIBO uh large intestine stuff going on they just can't eat a chickpea you know sometimes what that person needs is meat and two veg it's a very low inflammation diet it's um lots of healthy fats and it's not the grains and it's not the legumes and it's not the pulses from my point of view I, I find it quite in a way scary that perhaps people that are suffering with really chronic gut symptoms are hearing that they need to up their intake of fiber and it might be the opposite would you would you agree with that or how would you go about yeah, kind of i disagree in a, a certain way mm-hmm. so i think there is a growing argument which is two things one is a conversation i've started having with clients is we can't have the short term priority goal being getting you symptom free okay because with that that might be that must be a hard conversation to have sometimes yeah yeah i think the other conversation it's similar to the conversation which is look this is this could take 12 18 months two years Mm. um so i think that that conversation around expectation is really important because otherwise you're going to get three months down the road they're going to think you know you've failed them so to speak Mm -hmm. um and the relationship might end when actually we're at the beginning of the journey yeah. realistically. Yeah. Um, but going back to this idea, you know, you can potentially get someone significantly better in regards to symptom management by going on to a very rigid, extreme, restrictive diet. Yeah. But that doesn't help the long-term goal of getting someone healthy with a degree of flexibility and freedom with their diet. Mm. What you're doing is you are starving that microbiome you are going to be causing nutrient deficiencies that then could exacerbate the dysregulation of immunity and everything else. And although they'll feel better on meat and two veg, where do you go from there? Yeah. Because also what I've seen more and more recently is often people then try and bring some foods back in and actually they react worse than when they were just eating it anyway. Mm. So there has to be this idea, I think, and this comes through, you know, 
14 years of working with clients and also my own journey, um, which is we want someone to get to a level where their symptoms are tolerable, they can function and they can get on with life. Mm. But there's probably going to be some low level symptoms for several months to come while we address the underlying issue that caused it in the first place. Because mm. if you do go to these sort of restrictive diets, with the impact it will have on the microbiome, that is going to then have the impact on creating probably more food sensitivities uh, or adverse food reactions mm. for whatever mechanism it might be. And also cultivating an attitude of fear around eating. Yeah, you know, there is a huge fear and anxiety around food in those with chronic gut issues. Yeah. And it's partly come from, I think, these very rigid rules around what to eat. Mm. Um, and I think it's caused, I do think it's caused more harm than good. Um, not to say that it hasn't caused good for some. There are going to yeah. be plenty of people who have followed those sorts of, uh, let's call them gut healing diets mm -hmm. and responded really well. Mm. I think, however, as well as taking into consideration things like, does this person have a history of an eating disorder? Because yeah, I've absolutely. worked with clients whereby they've worked with previous practitioners and I'm sure other practitioners have found this with my old clients as well, where they didn't check there was an eating disorder in their history. There was, and then it's almost re-sparked yep. the unhealthy relationship with food. So it's really important to be mindful of that when we're thinking about this. But the way that I do it these days is I encourage clients to eat however small a portion it needs to be to get some diversity. Mm -hmm. So it could be the head of a stalk of asparagus. And then in the second or third week, it becomes two. Um, it's literally weaning people back onto mm. some of these foods because when you eat, let's say a bean, bacteria are going to be breaking down the bean, creating gas. And there are other bacteria that feed off the metabolites and the gas that's being produced. And there's this kind of domino effect that can take place. Mm. So if you never eat beans, you don't have the microbial ecosystem to effectively digest, break them down and not bloat and have yeah. maybe some uncomfortable symptoms. So it's not surprising because so many of us don't eat beans regularly that when we do eat them, we get a bit of flatulence, we get a bit of bloating. And it's kind of like, well, that's normal, mm. which takes us to another point, which is, and this is through personal reflection as well as clinical conversations, we become hypervigilant around our symptoms and if you speak to someone who doesn't have a gut issue, they don't overthink or overplay the fact that they're really bloated for 24 hours after overindulging mm. in X, Y, and Zs. And I think if you do feel like you've overindulged, it's kind of okay to have the odd gut symptom and it will go after a yeah. few hours or 24 yeah. hours. You could argue to some degree that's normal in the context of overindulgement. <laughs> that's right. the key. Yeah. Um, but I do think that, you know, we can become so hypervigilant, that nervous system is so primed mm. that again, it becomes a little bit of a negative feedback loop because yeah. we are on constant surveillance food has become a threat that we're trying to have to manage and mm. limit and that is problematic for a immune and digestive system in regards to tolerating it because there is a key term called oral tolerance this yeah. idea that our immune system should have an unresponsiveness to food and uh, oral antigens mm. i.e food mm. chronic stress 
some form of toxicity, anything which is disrupting that immune system is going to break oral tolerance and we're going to end up with food allergies or sensitivities. Mm. Um, And then again, it becomes back to what maintains oral tolerance, a healthy, diverse microbiome, short chain fatty acids like butyrate, which are produced by bacteria fermenting our dietary fiber. Mm -hmm. Um, It comes from managing and having healthy levels of stress and all the other elements of lifestyle that everyone Mm. preaches about. So again, that's another reason why if you go to a really restrictive diet, you will be reducing short chain fatty acid production. You'll be reducing butyrate, these metabolites that maintain a healthy gut wall, uh, maintain healthy oral tolerance and are essential for overall health. So going back to this idea of fiber, contributing to butyrate production, a short chain fatty acid that not only helps maintain a healthy gut wall and therefore prevents this idea of leaky gut, but we found receptors on cell surfaces for butyrate in the liver, in I think the heart and in other tissues of the body. So it's a great example whereby the metabolites that are produced by our microbiome Mm. have a systemic Systemic, impact. And this is why we have the gut-brain axis, the bone-gut axis, the liver-gut axis. We have the guts communicating via these metabolites everywhere. Um, And therefore that ecology, that environment within the digestive system is, is paramount. But we just have to put it also in the context of our systemic holistic health as well because it is bi-directional nice so one of the questions actually I got and I'm gonna just get my piece of paper so that I make sure that I answer some people's questions um was to do with the gut brain axis and given that we just touched on it then um someone was asking uh I think I think the knowledge that we need to be a little bit calmer a little bit less stressed um, in order to positively impact our overall health and our, our gut health in particular is um, disseminating quite nicely in, into the general population. Mm-hmm. For someone that is um, really keen to like find those moments of stillness for their health, mental health and their gut health, what would be some of your top tips in terms of you know, having a hectic and busy lifestyle like we all do these days, but needing to balance that with something that's like really effective and really will have tangible benefits on the gut health? Um, so just to clarify, are we, uh, this is the question around sort of stress management techniques to support yeah, gut health yeah, in via ta- that. Via the, yeah, I suppose via the gut-brain axis. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind is whatever someone actually looks forward to doing, because it's got to be something that is consistent. Um, So I talk a lot about sort of little pit stops in the day where you kind of ground yourself, do some deep breathing, essentially calm the mind and the body Mm. um, as a little bit of a recharge. Um, And that could be anything, you know, it's very easy, I think, for us health practitioners to say, go and book that yoga class or do some meditation. And they all have researched benefits um to the immune system indirectly probably to the microbiome as a result etc but i think it is more about just trying to bring some what uh, i think it's jill hassan described as just informal mindfulness to your day mm. um i read an article in a magazine this morning and it was it had a few quotes of people who love ironing 
Nice. And, uh, yeah. It's like some people... I'm also just t- looking at your ironing board right here. <laughs> <laughs> some people love, take their ironing board outside in the summer months and we'll just get some sunshine. Oh and I was gosh. like, oh my God, how have I not done this before? Yeah. Um, others just use it as a time to listen to podcasts or mm. some classical music. And I do think there is a real argument, which is rather than just looking for escapism, like the silent retreat, etc. Mm. And I do plenty of that. I love sort of those ecstatic experiences and some of the more extreme things. Yeah, yeah. But bringing a degree of mindfulness to your day is a great way, I think, of recharging. So all that means is bringing your full awareness to what you are doing mm. in the moment. And if that's ironing, great. If it's commuting, that's what it is. If it's emails, etc. Um, and I was listening to Jason Silver last night in his Flow Sessions podcast, and he was in he was interviewing um, basically a specialist in flow, and he had the great recommendation, which is look before you leave the office in the evening, close your apps. So when you come in, you're not going to see the emails that have come in overnight. Mm. So it's creating that environment as best you can, I think, for for single priority focus, for want of a better term. The idea that you're focusing on one thing and you're bringing all of your attention to that. Mm. Because I'm pretty sure there's plenty of research showing us that one of the problems is we're just multitasking all the time. And that is exhausting. (laughs) I know it well, as most people do. But if you can create those little habits around, okay, the email doesn't open for the first hour of my working day, that is time to get into flow and to create something rather than to be consumed by the Mm. email inbox and whatever it may be. So I think there's a bigger picture, which is bringing mindfulness and trying to do one thing at a time as best we can. Mm. Um, And then I do think the breath, I think just giving yourself little pit stops, if it's 60 seconds or five minutes, where you either go for a walk around the office or you just sit back in your chair and you regroup, Mm. you get centered and you actually essentially tune back into the messages that your body's probably trying to send you that you might not yet have received because yeah. of the busyness that we all have with deadlines, etc. Yeah. Um, so I'm becoming a really big believer in just focusing on one thing, giving that your attention and then changing as needed. I appreciate it's not always possible, mm. but if we can try and create some routine around that, I think it can be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the breath for me is is these days a really big one. We spoke off air that I'm looking at yeah. getting some sort of breath qualification because I think it's one of the most powerful tools that we have. And yet none of, very few of us are truly aware of its power Absolutely. and its therapeutic benefit or aware of how fundamentally we are breathing mm. moment to moment. And I think my meditation practice at the moment is more just around bringing awareness to the breath. Yeah. And I've just finished reading Just Breathe by Dan Brule. And there's like a 21 transformational day challenge. Each day is a new breath exercise mm. for you to explore. And it's it's great. You know, yeah. I know that in the past I haven't been a very good breather. I've been mm. a shallow breather, etc. And it's really transformative. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm finding and- more and more I'm giving patients supplement prescriptions, but also like a breathing prescription. Yeah. You know, the, like the lifestyle elements are almost not say more important but maybe more important actually than anything i can prescribe anyone these days i think so i think you know your the supplements are great and there are going to be times when someone's 
health challenge is largely driven by physical things yeah. like iron deficiency anemia give someone iron they're going to feel really great <laughs> there's like often people it's describe no it as a, as a light bulb on so yeah. you know there are these tools where it's like okay you're lacking this here's some yeah but that's i would argue almost not the most common scenario anymore it is people who have lost resiliency overall because of a broad spectrum burden yeah you know it is the reduced sort of breathing breathing efficiency for one of a better term it is some nutrient deficiencies it is the stress it is the lack of sleep it is the artificial light we're Absolutely, exposed to it's the yeah, lack yeah. of natural sunlight it's the lack of time in nature it's the lack of relationships and really kind of meaningful conversations it's mm. a lack of purpose in life that's not getting them out of bed in the morning it's it's all of these things to a little degree that have led to what I, what the research i guess would call a high allostatic load yeah um so i'm really interested these days in about building back resiliency um there's a great paper that talks about acquired resilience like we talk about acquired immunity mm. like you get exposed okay. to a bug your immune system next time it's exposed will have yeah. a, a more efficient quicker response but the authors of this paper on acquired resilience were saying you know uv radiation and sunlight fasting um certain toxins in food such as resveratrol from grapes and wine yeah. hypoxia so sort of oxygen delivery yeah. to tissues and physical exercise these are stresses we have evolved with and mm. are fundamental to being a resilient human being but we don't have many of them anymore. We mm. don't, oh no, fast is becoming trendy, but yeah. for a long time and still many of us don't have periods of food, sorry, periods of time without food. Yeah. We're relatively sedentary as a population, etc. cetera. Um, but they're saying is, you know, we need these stresses. Mm. They're not distressing. They don't cause a negative impact mm. if done at the appropriate sort of intensity for the appropriate amount of time. So getting some sunlight and sun well yeah getting some sunlight on your skin through your eyes in the morning in the yeah. afternoon getting some exercise doing all these things regularly is paramount to being a resilient human being mm. and that resiliency can also come into not just the physical world but our mental spiritual and emotional world as well and they all overlap yeah. so the more resilient we can be physical potentially and i think likely the more resilient we naturally are emotionally mentally um, and 100%. spiritually as well yeah. not that we don't want direct interventions for those three areas as mm. well so going back to this idea i think it's sometimes it's about shifting our perspective of what stress even is mm. um i was listening to a podcast i think yesterday and they were talking about the importance of purpose yeah and how much more resilient we are in every domain if what we're doing is something which excites us and we feel is for the greater good you mm. know we can keep going with the late nights or the early mornings for months if not years when we feel there is purpose associated with it mm. but if you're getting up every day going "Ugh, i'm going back to my job i don't feel it's really doing anything apart from paying the bills yeah well we can might be able to shift that mindset anyway because we need to pay bills mm -hmm. but can we introduce bring something into that life that gives someone some purpose or at least gives them some excitement and is improving their resiliency which will have a knock-on effect i think on all of these different things yeah i couldn't agree more so going off tangent a little bit there yeah but... no no it's great because um you're basically just backing up everything i talk about on social media <laughs> 
<laughs> the cold Excellent. water swimming, the sun rises, all yeah. of this stuff. It's like it matters. One thing I I do find um, not worrying but slightly frustrating is the fact that as soon as be- something becomes like popular or trendy, like fasting, um, it's so much easier for people to be really like anti. So yes, it's just a fad, or because it's being talked about on Instagram therefore it's like not good for me and then you, you some people come out kind of slaying it and stuff and it's almost it, it's just frustrating because I feel like what what is it gonna what's the next thing that's you know like like getting sunlight on your skin you know mm. how crucial that is for our health oh but nobody will get skin cancer and it's like every time something comes up it gets really popular and then it gets like I don't know it just frustrates me it's just like a, just like a cycle that i see so yeah. much i guess that's because i'm quite in that like social media world but no it's true and i think for me a key message is we need to encourage people to have greater intuition absolutely because it's all very well and good listening to your favorite health guy or gal and follow their advice on fasting for mm. example but i know for a fact that I perform much better to this day with a big breakfast as early as possible. Mm. I sleep better with that strategy as well. Mm. I love fasting in the morning. I love to get up, have my coffee and just get to work. Um, I'm most productive and everything else in the morning. But I know that if I have a coffee, get to work, I'm not going to be eating until 10, 10, 30, 11, 11, 30. And while that might have its own health benefits, I think actually my overall health isn't as good i'm not as resilient Mm. if compared to if i have a good protein fatty breakfast early in the morning in regards to moods in regards to blood sugar stability and therefore concentration my sleep is definitely better Mm. when i eat like that as well so but as a result i just try and have an earlier dinner so Mm. i still have that sort of fasting window um but it just starts earlier yeah um so i think it's really important people don't force things into their life without experimenting and and being confident to say no that isn't actually Mm. for me or how can I shift it so I I can have a 12 16 hour fasting window if I wanted to Mm. that works for me rather than necessarily doing it because that's what the research or that's what this person Mm. says so I I really is just so yeah it is because I also just think so many of these things in the bigger picture, how relevant truly are they? Um, and I I don't want to be, well, I'm a little bit controversial at times, but I primarily like to just sit on the fence so I don't get attacked by people. <laughs> um, but I, whenever I think I'm going down rabbit holes, I do remind myself of my granddad. You know, he was 92, still driving, lived independently, could have a normal conversation with everyone yeah. like he was he aged very well he was a farmer he got up at sunrise started work worked till sunset he worked very hard yeah um but he was a farmer he worked outside he was in nature he didn't have the modern day stresses that mm-hmm. we have but he had huge stresses of making sure he had a, a decent crop so he could earn a living and things like this mm-hmm. but he didn't have any strategies around fasting around probiotics or anything like this he just lived what you could argue was a relatively natural life he was physically active spent time outside had a great relationship with his wife 
and just did the basics well and consistently, mm. but was a really hard worker. Mm. Fish and chips from the local fish and chip shop every Friday night. That yeah. was a ritual that they yeah. had. And we used to love going there for Fridays because we would join in. Uh, grandma was a great cook. They would have their apple pies and things on a Sunday in the roast. So it was just a natural way of living with a healthy relationship to all of these things. Mm. So, you know, it's great and it's fun and it's exciting to look at some of the research and to dive into it at times. But again, and also speaking to so many of my colleagues these days, I think you get to a point in clinical practice where you go, the research and going that deep just is not relevant. Mm. Like it's not what people need to get well. Totally agree with um, that. They need the basics. They need that interaction. They need to feel safer around food. They need to feel safer in their community. They mm. need to feel they have a community. Yeah. These are way more important than some of the stuff that we bicker about on social media, yeah. even though we can all find it really interesting. And, you know, we like to read the latest research, but I just think we need to go back to the bigger picture mm. most of the time. Yeah, amazing. Um, there is one last quite niche question that I have ah, before the okay. um, the final three. Uh, hiatus hernias. Ooh, okay. <laughs> I'm seeing a lot more of those and a lot, talking to a lot more people that have been diagnosed with them. What is the relationship of a hiatus hernia? Firstly, what is it and the relationship with our gut health? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I... I'm trying to think through my clientele. It's not something I see very often at all, which mm. is interesting. I think it's always interesting when people are seeing like a very regular theme in their clientele, which is very different to someone else's. Yeah. Um, off the top of my head, I'm not sure I can even give you a definition because it's something mm. I so rarely see, to be mm. honest. Um, but I would, I would definitely be thinking around all the digestive dominoes again. So I'd yeah. be thinking about... Um, stomach acidity and hypochlorhydria or low stomach acid and I'd be thinking about the overall digestive process basically mm. um, obviously there are strategies around um, having the head slightly elevated in the bed for example and things like this so there are strategies that can be helpful to manage the symptoms mm. um, but thinking about clients that I've had in the past with the diagnosis I've often just gone back to the fundamentals of digestive health and and trying to figure out where, where those imbalances yeah. lie ultimately. Yeah, yeah. I guess a, a much more common um, and slightly relatable condition might be heartburn that people mm. love to pop pills for, yeah. which just exacerbates the problem. And again, it would be going back to let's chew your food properly. Let's look at what you're eating, what time you're eating. Definitely. And all of that. There is, there is a, definitely a... Um, a SIBO upper GI connection. Okay. Um, so That's one of the theories there is if you take reflux or indigestion and things like this, that kind of just pressure from the gas production mm. and the bloating potentially is having an impact higher up. But I also think I'm right in saying there's research between elevated calprotectin, which is an inflammatory marker used in stool testing to mm. show whether someone's got inflammation in the colon, the large intestine, and upper GI symptoms. So mm. it's this idea that it's all connected. That pipe is one. Um, and although there are um, trap doors along the way, valves like the ileocecal valve that mm. will separate the small and large intestine, an imbalance towards the end of the entire digestive system 
may be contributing to symptoms higher up as yeah, well yeah. through may probably quite strange mechanisms. Mm. <laughs> okay. So yeah, the domino effect. We keep yeah, coming back to it. I think it's it, really crucial it's idea to kind of get hold of. Definitely, I think, a really sound framework. Yeah. So, you know, uh, creating a calm environment, chewing your food thoroughly until it's unrecognizable before you swallow, putting down your knife and fork every mouthful to mm. encourage yourself to be conscious of the chewing consider bitter foods you know things like yeah. um dandelion leaves um a little bit of lemon juice apple cider vinegar these things can be used uh pre or at the beginning of meals to, to support the, exactly yeah. yeah to stimulate gastric juices and yeah. things um and then really kind of in many ways continuing that throughout the day you know bring that awareness um moment to moment as best we can mm. Amazing. Um, so yeah Cool. So I have three questions that I ask everyone to end the podcast. Okay. Um, these won't necessarily be related to gut health. If they were, that would be amazing. <laughs> um, what's one thing in life you would do again if you could? Um, it's a good question. I did think about this and my answer was that anything I want to do again, I, w I will. <laughs> <laughs> so that's great yeah no one's ever I, said that before i think you know if there's something that you love that much then do everything you can to yeah. do it again ultimately so things for me would be psychedelics mm. um skydiving mm. um the research sorry just to jump the psychedelic the, that whole area mm. area of research now is super interesting yes it is really interesting and i think it's really exciting to think of all of the consequences from a individual to society to cultural level. Mm. It is, it is for me, the most exciting area of research at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just think it's, it's remarkable what's going on there. Mm. Um, so those are the two that, that sort of come to mind. I guess the third I would say is kind of getting married, obviously to the same person. <laughs> Um, but you know, that was, that was such a special day to be with friends and family. Yeah. And although you would like to think you can cultivate those days again, you can't no, because there's the special can't. uniqueness of the fact that it's your wedding. We day. tried, we got married twice, uh, once in Australia, once oh, in England. Brilliant. There we go. <laughs> I like that idea. Yeah. <laughs> and then everyone was saying, so when's the third wedding? You know, you got to like, do, do this again. Um, what's one thing you'd change if you could? And this could be your life. It could be the world at large. It could be the health industry. It could oh, be wow. Okay. Okay. That's, that changes things. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, first thing that comes to mind, and this is probably just a little bit of a projection through certain psychedelic experiences, but it would be changing, uh, changing I, the fear that certainly I've come to realize I have, and I think many of us have in regards to essentially being our true selves. Okay. So if I could change one thing, it would be around that, making people feel safe-er mm. to truly express themselves and be the true person that they are mm. underneath what has been often i think kind of partly conditioned into us yeah nice and finally the podcast is called state of mind what does state of mind mean to you uh 
I guess, I guess state of mind means to me how we perceive and interact with the world at large. So I think minds, I know through some of the stuff I've read has been debated in the research or discussed between kind of mind and consciousness and they're not necessarily the same thing. So mm. we have kind of consciousness, but the mind seems to be a slightly more holistic um, whole element to it. So it includes consciousness, but it includes other elements maybe of spirituality and our soul and things like this as well. But but for me, state of mind would very much be about what are my perceptions of the world? How am I interpreting what's going on mm. in my internal and external environment? Um, and how I relate to that information, ultimately, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Nice. That's it, we're done. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yay. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning back into State of Mind. I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Alex. That's it for this week, but I'll be back same time, same place next Monday with a brand new episode. Bye-bye.